All right. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And that was a very appropriate song for our passage. So thank you, Josh. I, can, I would assume that wasn't by mistake. It was a very thoughtfully placed song. Today we're, we're looking at uh, the second part of Luke's description of the ascension. And the ascension is all about our God on the throne. So I'm not, I don't want to assume that everybody in this room knows what I mean when I refer to the term the ascension. Uh, when we talk about Good Friday, right, the crucifixion, I can assume a sense of knowledge. And even the resurrection, I can assume that you understand. But it's possible that someone here is nodding along to the term ascension, but they're saying, I'm not entirely sure what we're talking about. What we're talking about is after the resurrection, after Jesus revealed himself and taught his disciples for 40 days, he ascended, thus the term ascension, he ascended to heaven. And he is now seated on his throne, as we just sang. Behold our God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus now reigns. All authority on heaven and earth have been given to him. And this is Luke's account of that great event, when Jesus ascended to sit, <laughs> sit at the right hand of the Father. This passage, this paragraph we're looking at, is, um, is incredible. I'll, I'll say... You could preach 10 sermons on this paragraph. You could write 10 books on this paragraph, and people have. There's so much good for us to see, and we have such a short time. And so today, I just want to pray and invite God to help us uh, to magnify the Word and to glorify the Son in our midst. And so let's just take a minute and be still before the Lord, and then we're going to ask for His help. God, we need to see our King today. We need your help to see the king today. Lord, as I look out across this room, Lord, and I don't know and I can't see hearts. The king can, I cannot. But I would imagine that there's, there's anger, there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness, there's fear, there's faithlessness. There are marriages in disarray, straying children, um, grief over the brokenness of this world, grief, grief over the brokenness of our bodies. Over the, grief over the brokenness of our loved one's bodies. And Lord, there's 101 reasons for us to be distracted from hearing your truth today. But Lord, yet all of those reasons remind us that we need to hear your truth today. We need to see our King. And, and we just can't do that in our strength. And Lord, I can't muster that up with anything that I would say. Um, but by the power of your Spirit working in our midst, you will glorify the Son as we look to the word. So help us today, I pray. Lord, give us keen, alert minds. Uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to be uh, changed. God, so we're asking you to do this because you promised to do this. You tell us that the word goes forth and it never returns void. You promise us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we're coming with great expectation today. Um, but also acknowledging our great need. Lord, I confess, I just feel, I feel frail. I feel very weak today. Lord, and it's good to feel this way because it causes me, it causes us to lean on you. So we ask for the help of your spirit in our midst, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear now from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word. We're going to read in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 6 to 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know 
the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we broke this uh, account of the ascension. I told you this starts in verse 1, Luke's account of the ascension here. We broke it into two sections because there's so much ground to cover. And that allows us this morning to zoom in on a particular theme that I think really is going to shape our understanding of the book of Acts. What I want to do today is I want to zoom in on the questions that the disciples asked before Jesus ascends to heaven. Because I would assume as we read through this text in our Bible reading, we don't necessarily draw a line between their question and the content that follows. And yet everything that Jesus says is a response to this question. Look at it in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So everything that Jesus says is a response to that question. And uh, you know, if you've been here for any length of time, we often laugh about the disciples asking bad questions. Uh, they did that from time to time. Sometimes they asked horrifying questions, right? They're so off the mark. This isn't one of them. This is a good question. Jesus has been priming the pump for this question. When Jesus was ministering before the cross with his disciples, he always was telling parables about the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, when Jesus was resurrected and he was walking with his disciples for 40 days and he was teaching them and helping them to see how the scriptures were pointing forward, do you remember what the ultimate theme of, of that teaching was? You, you don't need to guess because we find the answer in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? And speaking about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, the resurrected Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's opening the scriptures and he's opening their eyes and he's helping them to see how the kingdom of God is being fulfilled in their midst. And so they look at the resurrected king and they say, now at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus? Is it now? Is it here? That is a, that's a valid question. It's, it's an excellent question. It's exactly the question that you or I would be asking in that moment. And I'm so glad they asked it because can I tell you something? We are still wrestling with that question. The kingdom of God, is it now? What, what should we expect to see in our midst? Was this just like a, was this a then thing? Or are there expectations we should have for today? Or is this only for the future? Boy, what you believe about that question, how you answer it is going to shape the way you do ministry. And, and you're going to see a variety of answers across Christendom. And, and the nature of it, right? They're asking, is it going to be restored to Israel? Like, the, the nature of the kingdom is a question we still wrestle with. Is this going to be a national thing, Lord? Is, or is it going to be a personal thing? Or do we need to wait, wield the, the statecraft and, and get a hold of the nation? Or do we let go and let God and hide in our basement? The way you answer that question is going to shape the way you do ministry too. 
We're still asking this question 2,000 years later. I'm so glad the disciples asked it so that we can, we can hear Jesus' answer to this question. What are we asking for when we pray, let your kingdom come? Have you ever thought about that? One thing that we, we are guilty of sometimes as Christians is we say things. We say them from, like, from our childhood onward, and we never actually stop to, to think about what it is that we're saying. What are we praying for when we say, let your kingdom come? What are we finding confidence in when we sing, your kingdom is forever? What am I declaring when I preach that the kingdom of God is advancing in the world? We ought to know. And so we're going to look to this passage, and we're going to zoom in on this question, and we're going to learn three lessons about the kingdom of God. First, we learn here that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, not consummated. And here I've broken one of the cardinal rules. You never put words in your heading that you have to define. Because some of you are wondering, what do you mean inaugurated, not consummated? Those are important words, so I unashamedly use them, but let's explain them. Inaugurated means started. Right? The kingdom of God has, has been started, but not consummated, meaning not yet fulfilled, not yet fully realized. Timing is everything, and the timing of the kingdom is so frequently misunderstood. And that's what was going on with the disciples. They're wondering about timing. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They're asking, is the kingdom of God now? And the Jewish people had long been uh, looking for their Messiah. So again, not a bad question. They were looking with great anticipation for the king who would come in the line of David who would restore their fortune, who would lift them up above their oppression. And their hope was biblical. Their, their hope was founded in what God had promised. So for example, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And of course, we caught a glimpse of this in David's son Solomon. Solomon was the king at the height, at the apex of Israel's reign. Solomon built the temple. Uh, Solomon was full of wisdom. The queen of Sheba came to, to see the wisdom of Solomon. And yet Solomon, like every king before him and every king after him before Jesus, died. So the Israelites were waiting for the king who will reign forever in the line of David. This anticipation explains why so many times in Jesus' ministry when he was going out and, and he was teaching and he was performing signs and wonders, the crowds tried to grab hold of him and put him on the throne by force. So in John chapter 6, for example, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So you see this deeply ingrained anticipation. And the disciples were feeling it. And the Jewish people were feeling it as Jesus ministered. They were ready for the fulfillment of the promise and they were ready for it now. Because you know what? Life is hard. Life is hard. But here he is. Here's the king. And now is the time when finally we're going to experience the blessing. The disciples looked at their resurrected king and they considered the lessons he had taught them for 40 days. They saw all the prophetic strands coming together, landing on Jesus. 
And they said, Jesus is the kingdom of God now. And that's a tricky question because the answer is yes, but. This is why we struggle with it. Yes, the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. Now that's complicated, so let's spend a moment unpacking that. In Jesus' life and ministry, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It was started. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12 as he was casting out demons. And the people came to him and they said, are, how are you doing this? Are you doing this by the power of Satan? And he says, he says, no. And then he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. The, the darkness is being cast out. The captives are being set free. The world is being restored. It's almost like after a storm and the first beam of light breaks through the clouds. Jesus says, that's what you're witnessing. The kingdom of God is here. But the kingdom of God in its fullness has not yet arrived in completion. And I know that's true because I still bury my loved ones and so do you. I know that's true because I still see a world that is plagued with sin. I know that's true because little ones still get cancer. We're living in the now, but we're also living in the not yet. It's not yet what we're longing for. Do you feel that? Christian, do you, do you understand? Do you feel that in your life? It's the not yet. It's the, it's the groaning. Well, why the delay? That's the question that I want to ask. And I'm sure the disciples were feeling that. Jesus, what are, we, what are you waiting for? You know, as he ascends to heaven. Why the delay? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3 gives us one of the reasons for the delay. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, that's the day when the kingdom will be fully consummated, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So one of the reasons for the delay between the kingdom of God starting and the kingdom of God being fully consummated is because our God is merciful. Because if the kingdom of God were fully consummated right now, it would be bad news for so many people living in our city. Because that would mean that their time to repent is gone. Because that would mean that the, the reign of King Jesus has come and they have rejected the king and that they're going to answer for that. And so in his patience, God is waiting. In his mercy, God is waiting. And so in our groaning, in our longing, as we're feeling like, why won't you, why won't you come? As we pray, let your kingdom come. Let us also be a people who are driven out by mercy into the world. As we pray, let your kingdom come because life is so hard. Let us also be going across the street and telling our people, his kingdom will come. Repent, bow before the king before it's too late. Because that is the purpose of the delay. And one day he will come. And on that day, in verse 11 of our text today, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come. In the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's the first thing that we learn in this passage. That we're living in a season of God's patience. We're living in between the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It has not yet been consummated. And it's important that we see that. Second, we learn here that the kingdom of God is located in a person, not a nation. 
The first point was complicated. This one's even more so. But this represents one of, if not the most significant paradigm shift that we will find in the book of Acts. The disciples were still expecting a, a localized kingdom. They thought the kingdom of God was going to be a national kingdom, which is why they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And again, their question wasn't ridiculous. It wasn't a bad question. It's exactly the question I would have asked if I was in their shoes. The anticipation of the Jewish people was that God was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. They believed that the promises of blessing were for the biological descendants of Abraham. And that those blessings would land upon the geographic land of promise, Israel. That's what they were expecting. But God's plan stretched beyond the national walls that they had grown so accustomed to. By the way, if you don't understand this, the New Testament's going to be full of a whole bunch of arguments that, that will never make sense to you. Like this, this was a fundamental shift. This is why we have books like the book of Galatians. Because you've got, you've got a people and they're expecting that the blessing has, is going to have to come through their biological people in this geographical place. They're expecting it like this. Now, does that mean they didn't love the nations? No, of course not. The expectation was that as God blesses us, that blessing will overflow to the world. The world will come to us and they will see and they will delight. But what Jesus teaches us here is that God is actually doing something entirely different. And, and entirely unexpected and entirely beautiful. So when Paul writes to the Galatians, listen closely to what he says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So they're saying, yeah, exactly. That's what we've been saying, Paul. But it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul leans in and he says, you know, we've, we've missed something here. Actually, the promise was for Abraham's seed, the one. The promises, all the blessings were, were for the one, and that one is Jesus. And now those blessings are available to all, to Jew and Gentile alike, through faith in Jesus. That's what he goes on to explain in verse 7 of chapter 3 in Galatians. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So he says all the blessings, yes, they're for the children of Abraham, but you realize who the children of Abraham are, don't you? The children of Abraham are those who have placed their trust in the seed of Abraham, in Jesus. And through Christ, all of those blessings are for us. If you have faith in Jesus, if you believe that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if you accept the Messiah that the prophets pointed forward to, then you are a true child of Abraham. Then you are an heir of the blessings that were promised to God's people. Which is why we sing that kid's song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham... And I'm one of them. And so are you. I'm Dutch. I shouldn't get to sing that song, right? You know, it's, we, you, we sing it all the time. We don't think much of it. If I was in Israel and I started singing that song, some people would look at me like, no, you're not. But the Apostle Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, yes, I am. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Through Christ, I've been grafted into this family and I receive the blessing. And that is a paradigm shift. So the disciples' understanding of the kingdom, as Jesus has been ministering to them for 40 days, as he's preparing to ascend, at this point, they're still limited by this expectation. And they needed this expectation to be exploded. 
The first two chapters of Acts demonstrates how God explodes this understanding. It bursts open. It, and it's not that he like throws it in the garbage. He just expands it. He says it, yes and more. We catch the first glimpse of that here in verse 8. Jesus tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they say, yes. That's what we expected. And in all Judea. Okay, that's broader. That's a big job. But praise God. And in Samaria. Whoa, whoa, Jesus. Samaria. The, Samar- the half-breed Samaritans. The, there was like, there's a whole racial divide here with the Samaritans. Jesus, the kingdom, we're proclaiming the kingdom to the Samaritans and to the ends of the earth. To the Gentiles, Jesus? To the Romans? We're going to go over and and, and proclaim this to the Spaniards? Yeah, because the kingdom of God is for the world. Proclaim it in Jerusalem, yes, but don't stop there. Keep going. God has a plan of redemption for the entire world, and his name is Jesus. And the kingdom of God is located in the person of Jesus Christ. And to be clear, this was always God's plan. It's not as if he, he kind of threw out the old playbook. This was always the plan. It just wasn't, the, the Jews weren't seeing it. It was hidden in God's word. But it was hiding in plain sight. For example, Isaiah 49, verse 6. God talks about his servant who would come. The servant is Jesus. And he makes this promise about the servant. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. He says, that's too small. To, to limit this to just this one biological, geographical, nope, too small, too light a thing. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So through Jesus, the descendant of David, the seed of Abraham, the servant promised in Isaiah, the child of promise from Genesis who was struck on the heel but who crushed the serpent's head. Through Jesus, the promises of God have been unlocked for the nations. I like this quote from one Bible scholar. He says, when we see Jesus, we see the kingdom of God with sandals. The kingdom, one person like that with me. Thank you. I like that as well. So it's just those little pithy things. I'll remember that. And through the blessings of the kingdom of God. It stresses beyond the, nation, beyond the nation of Israel and the biological children of Abraham to any and all who believe in his name. That's the second thing that we learn here. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a lot as we work through the book of Acts. It brings us to the third thing that we learn here about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God advances with Holy Spirit-empowered words, not weapons. And sometimes we take this for granted because we've been so shaped by Christianity, the teaching of Jesus. But this... This is pretty spectacular, the way that this kingdom advances. Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and what? And you will take up the sword, and you will show them what's what? No. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus is is about to take his throne, right? He's about to sit down on the throne. If you had never read the Bible, if you, if you weren't familiar at all with this story, you wouldn't be shocked if this story went, and before he ascended, he said, you'll receive power, and you will overthrow those Romans. You will put them in their place, and you will show them who the real king is. Or, or if Jesus said, you will receive power, and then you will march right into that synagogue, and you will overthrow those Jewish leaders who were complicit in putting me to death. 
you will show them that I was right. Right? That, if you'd never read the Bible, that, you wouldn't be surprised by that ending to this story. But that's not what Jesus says. You'll be my witnesses. You'll go out into the world and, and listen, they'll stone you. You'll go out into the world and they're going to crucify you. They're going to they're going to set you on fire and light up Nero's garden. They're going to they're going to take you into the Colosseum and they're all going to laugh and cheer while lions maul you to death. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to open your mouth and you're going to proclaim Jesus is Lord. And that will change the world. That will change the world. They'll mock you and you'll point them to the king of kings. They'll insult you, and you'll point them to the one who was reviled but did not revile in return. They'll beat you, and you'll point them to the one who was struck for us. And they'll kill you. And you'll point them to the one who overcame the grave. And and that's going to change the world. That was the plan as Jesus ascended to his throne. And, and we, sometimes it's like that, it escapes us how incredible, I'm so glad that was the plan that our king left us with. It's so glorious, it's so like him. You're not going to pick up the sword, you're not going to try and take hold of the state and impose it on them, and, and sometimes we've tried to do that, and it's been such a terrible mess, and Jesus is like, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to point them to the king of kings, and you're going to bear witness to what you've seen. The plan shouldn't have worked. It shouldn't have worked. This small band of disciples, fishermen and zealots who are always asking bad questions, located in this, in this place, that shouldn't have changed life for us here 2,000 years later, but it did. Not because of the, of the power of these men, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit glorifying the Son. That's what we read actually in John chapter, was it John chapter 16, verse 14. Maybe flip there. Let's see this together. It's not on the screen. It's talking about the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, this is John chapter 14 in verse 16. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'm reading John 14, 16. I'm like, this is not landing where I thought it would land. It's John 16, 14. But God's word is all good. So we've received extra blessing today. Whew. I just beat a sweat stripping down. I thought, this is not going where I thought it was. Let's flip ahead to John 16. I'm going to begin in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, 
and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Listen. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He will glorify me, Jesus says. The the power of the Holy Spirit is promised to the disciples. He will come upon you in power, and what will happen? Power to do what? Power to wield the sword? No, power to bear witness. He will glorify me when you talk to your neighbor. He will glorify me when you talk to your accuser, when you talk to your jailer. He will glorify me. So open your mouth and bear witness to all that you've seen. That was the plan. The plan that changed the world. The testimony that they bore with them proved to be unstoppable. And they were carried by the powerful Spirit of God. Now, learning these lessons, seeing what we've seen, I do want to take the rest of our time this morning and I want to think about the implications for us as we do ministry here in Aurelia and, and beyond. But how does this, how does this impact our, our lives? How does this change the way we do ministry? I want to pull out three implications as we conclude. First, because the kingdom of God has been inaugurated but not yet consummated, our approach to ministry must not confuse the now with the not yet. So as we head into this series, we're going to be talking an awful lot about God's powerful working. We're going to be talking an awful lot about the kingdom of God. And I want to make sure that we identify as we walk this road that there are ditches on either side, as is always the case, right? Ditches on either side. Now, on one side of the road, and this is maybe one of the more obvious ditches, are those who, who would just say, forget the not yet. All of the blessings are for us right now, every time. And I just want to, I want to identify that as a dangerous ditch. And the way that that might manifest is, and some of you have experienced this before, people who would say, God is going to heal every person every time if you just have enough faith. And, and I just want to identify that that is coming from a, a, a heart that sees the lordship of Christ and recognizes the power that his kingdom is advancing. It's coming from a really sweet place. I want to acknowledge that. But that is a very dangerous mistake because there are many people, even in this room, who have been wounded by this idea that my loved one is dead or that I'm still sick because my faith is deficient. That's not going to fly here. But there's a ditch on the other side of the road that I also want to identify. And this one is maybe a bit harder to spot. But that's the ditch that ignores the now. And they probably need to spend a bit of time with the people in the other ditch. And they can pull each other into the middle. But there are people who would, who would just deny all work of power. Who, who would, who would, they might not deny that the kingdom of God is now, but they live in such a way that they deny that it's now. They don't pray for big things. They don't expect big things. It's like they suck faith out of the room when they come. And so they're not praying praying for miracles because they don't think that that would ever happen. That was was then, it's done, and one day it will come, but not now. No, the kingdom of God is now and not yet. And that's attention. And to walk that center road is going to be difficult for us, but we must do it. We must resolve to do it. What will that look like? Well, we're going to minister in this place We resolve to minister in this place with an expectation that Jesus will overcome the power of darkness in this city. We will expect that every man, every woman, every boy and girl in this church who is a child of the King will actually grow in holiness and will be set free from besetting sin by one degree of glory to the next. 
And we're going to ask for things, big things, miraculous things, things that we could never accomplish in our own strength, things that should never take place. We're going to ask for the miraculous. For example, a week from tomorrow night, we're going to meet with someone in our congregation, and they're sick, and we're going to obey James 5, and the elders are going to anoint them with oil, and they're going to confess their sin, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to heal them, and we believe that God can heal them, and he might heal them in that moment. We're going to ask for that. However, because we're walking the narrow road, we're going to also acknowledge in humility that the kingdom of God is not yet fully consummated. They might not receive a complete healing in that moment. We live in a season of of groaning and gladness. Glad groaning. I think John Piper used that in a sermon one time and it stuck with me. Glad groaning. We have the joy of the Lord. We have the hope. We've seen a glimpse, and sometimes he, he grants us to see a greater glimpse, and so we're pleading for more of that, and yet we recognize that what is coming is so much greater, and we're waiting for it with great anticipation and great expectation, and if he leaves us to wait a little longer, it's for his mercy. It's because of his patience. It's because of his love for the world, and so I can endure. In joy, I can endure, but I'm longing. And I'm praying, let your kingdom come. And I'm expecting to see my great king to do glorious things in this midst. And I'm walking a narrow road, and it's going to be a challenge for us to stay there in the center. But that's what we're striving to do. So let me just tell you from the, from the outset of this series, that's where we're walking. So if you are in this ditch or you're in this ditch, it's going to be unpleasant. You're welcome to jump off, but this is where we're headed. Second, implication. Because the kingdom of God is located in a person and not a nation, Because the kingdom of God advances by words and not weapons, second, our approach to ministry must shift from come and see to go and tell. So as we read the Old Testament, you know, sometimes people think that in the Old Testament, God didn't care about mission. Um, Of course he did. God, God never changes. But the approach to world mission in the Old Testament was very much a come and see approach. God was, he was building for himself a people. He was building for himself a nation. And and he was glorifying himself through them, and the world was seeing his wisdom and his goodness in and through them. The best example of this is in the reign of Solomon, which, as we said, was the height of Israel's reign. And in the reign of Solomon, the, the wisdom of God was on full display, and the queen of Sheba came, and she marveled at the wisdom, and she marveled at Israel, and she worshiped God. So that was the, the plan for world mission in the Old Testament. But now our marching orders have changed. Jesus tells us, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So there's a shift here from the come and see to the go and tell. The gospel propels us out into the world. You're saying, well, how does that affect us here? It means our approach to ministry, Redeemer City Church, should not be built around building and building and building something here in this little room in hopes that our neighbors might open the door and look inside. And so often I find myself slipping back into that mentality. And I, and I start telling myself, man, if I just write a better sermon, if we can just get this, if we can just keep up in the game in the music, if we can just build the perfect programming, then they will come and they will see the goodness of God and listen. We want to preach great sermons and we want to we want our corporate worship to be delightful and, and glorious. And we're going to run programs. And sometimes lost people will come through these doors and they will get saved. Praise God for that. But we're supposed to go. We're supposed to go out. 
unapologetically, our philosophy of ministry here at Redeemer, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, our philosophy of ministry for Redeemer here is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's to equip you to go out and to reach your neighbor. Our plan for your neighbor is not that you would one day, you know, give them a chocolate bar and lure them into this building, and then, and then we'll put on a fancy show and slip in the gospel. That's not our plan for your neighbor. Our plan for your neighbor is to open the word of God and ask the Holy Spirit for help that he would equip you to go to your neighbor and to open your mouth and to bear witness to Jesus Christ. There's power there. That's the plan that Jesus gave to us. It's the plan that works. And so that's what this is going to be. We're going to be equipping and going, equipping and going. That's our approach. And if we slip back into the come and see approach, you'll see it. Because suddenly the majority of our budget will be devoted to our own comfort here in this place. And the majority of our time will be devoted to the maintenance of everything here. And the majority of our energy will be devoted to in-house arguments over our minute preferences and details. And we'll, we'll bicker and battle over this and that. And it's exactly what the devil wants. We're not going to do it. We need to guard against it. Because we are called to go. You are called to go. To your family. The, the, the plan for your cousin, your lost cousin, I'm not a prophet, but the plan for your lost cousin I don't think is me. I don't think it's your elder. I think, I think it's you. Who did God put in their life to bear witness to Jesus Christ? He put you in their life. The plan for your lost neighbor, it's you. Your coworker, it's you. Now maybe, maybe it's somebody else, but you should assume it's you because God put you in their life. So go. Bear witness all that Christ has done. And there's so much more that we could say there, but again, we're, we're starting off in the book of Acts. We're going to have a lot of time. There's going to be a lot of talk about evangelism and witness, so we'll get back to that. But finally, I want to close here. Our third implication for ministry here at Redeemer is that our approach to ministry must be shaped by an expectation of the return of the king. I want to conclude. I want to read verse 9 to 11 here. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I... Uh, this is one of those scenes in the Bible when every time I read it, I can't help but picture it. And when I picture it, I, I can't help but laugh and resonate with the disciples a little bit. You, you wonder, how long were they looking into heaven? I, every time I read it, I wonder, how long was it that they were looking into heaven? If I were in their shoes, I would have been looking for a long time. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Think about the, the last two months of their lives. You ever had two months that really just were a roller coaster of emotion? Not compared to these guys. Think about Palm Sunday. They come in Jerusalem. Jesus is on a donkey. They're seeing prophecies being fulfilled before their eyes. The crowds are, are waving palm branches singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the, the disciples are, are giving way to this hope that the king is coming into Jerusalem and all of our expectations are going to be fulfilled. Boy, it's been a hard slog, but here we are now. Yes, a few days later is Good Friday. And their king... Their friend is beaten and mocked and scourged with whips. And, and 
A crown of thorns is placed on his head, and he's unrecognizable, and, he's, and then he's killed. And along with him, all of their hopes, all of their expectations are nailed to that cross. And so they depart. And you think about Holy Saturday and the disillusionment and the discouragement and the despair. Do we go back to our old life now? Some of them did. What, did we just waste that? Is this... But then Resurrection Sunday comes along and they start hearing whispers that the, the resurrected king, Jesus, rose from the grave. Did you know? Did you hear it? And some of them are giving way to this because they're a bit optimistic. Some of them are pessimistic and they don't believe it. They refuse to go back there because they just experienced Friday. I'm not doing that again. But then they see Christ and for 40 days he teaches them and he opens the Bible and he shows them, look, this needed to happen and this needed to happen. And he tells them about the kingdom of God and they see that Jesus is the king, that we, were waiting. we weren't wrong. He's here, and it's come, and finally, and oh, yes, and they look at Jesus, and they say, Jesus, now at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it? And then he gives them an impossible assignment, and, and he disappears and ascends to heaven. You've got to wonder, like, how long are they standing there? I assume... For quite a while, they're looking at each other. One's got some tears in his eyes. He's exhausted, right? It's been such a long... They thought this was finally the end. And Jesus says, oh, it's the beginning. And the angel comes to them and says, why are you standing looking into heaven? He says, you've got work to do. Boy, I would have been standing for an awfully long time. I love that story. You got work to do. And Jesus prepared them for this moment because Jesus is so gracious and he knows what we need. And so you think back to all the parables that he told about the kingdom. And one of the dominant themes in those stories that he told was the theme of, of, of being diligent in preparation for the return of the king. Because he knew that you're going to be inclined to stand and stare at heaven. But you've got work to do. And you need to remember the king is coming. So when he told them the parable of the virgins of the wedding feast, or when he told them the parable of the talents, or he pulled, told them the parable about the servant of the house, it always concluded with a warning, a reminder that the king is coming home. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. As one commentator notes, discipleship is not about knowing the times and dates, but it's about being ready. So as we bring this to a landing this morning, I just want to ask a question of us as a church. I want to ask a question of myself and of you. Are we ready for the return of the king? Are you ready for the return of the king? When he comes and he looks at your life and he looks at what you have busied yourself with? Is it the assignment that he has entrusted to you? Now that doesn't mean we all need to leave our jobs and take up vocational ministry. It, it, the opposite of that. Boy, he, he has got you in a place where you're interacting with lost people all the time. If you're in the workforce, you've got lost people in your family. Some of you he's going to call to global missions. Maybe some of you right now, the Holy Spirit's pressing upon your heart. He's, he's been calling you to this for a long time. The king is coming. He's given us our assignment. 
Is that what we're devoting ourselves to? And of course, whenever we think about the assignment, I'm sure it was true for the disciples as well, we think about our powerlessness for that assignment. And some of you immediately think, well, I'm not the, t- I'm not the talker. I'm not, I'm not very educated. Uh, I'm not very eloquent. I'm pretty awkward. I'm not the kind of person that the, God, that Lord, the Lord would use for such things. And yet here in this passage, he says, it's not about you. He has given you power. He's given you the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ. And so it's not about how capable you are. It's about how obedient you are and how capable he is. So the angel's question for the disciples strikes me as an appropriate question as we conclude our sermon this morning. Let me read this and then we'll pray. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you would, in your kindness and your mercy, uh, open eyes that have been long shut and soften hearts that have been long hard, unstop ears that have been closed. You tell us that there will always be those who hearing don't hear and seeing don't see. But you also tell us that you delight to save the lost. You take no delight in the when the wicked perish. So God, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, that we would see, that we would know, that we would love you, that we would see the King. God, I pray that today would be a day when, when you would mobilize your church to reach the lost. Lord, I can picture people on my street who need to hear about Jesus, Lord. Give me the courage to speak to them. I pray that, that right now you would, by the power of your Spirit, just prompt people in this congregation. Help them to see their lost co-worker. God, their, their lost son. That, the aunt in their family that is so hard to you. God, I pray that you would bring these people to our minds and, and help us to see them with the mercy that you see them. That this delay is a, is a time of mercy. God, let us be witnesses. Lord, I pray that you would help us, prompt us. Uh, Lord, I also just pray... Here's a big prayer of faith. Lord, perhaps you are calling someone here to, to cross the ocean, you know, to, to go to the ends of the earth. Lord, and, and so often we just assume that your plans for us are, are limited and, and, and here. And Lord, it's only by your grace that you would open our eyes to see a plan that exceeds our expectations. So Lord, maybe there's somebody here today and you're opening their eyes to see a call that you have for their life that is not what they expected. Lord, whatever it is, Lord, there's nobody here who does not have a call on their life. There's nobody here who does not have a mission field. So would you do what you promised to do? Empower us with your spirit that we would be witnesses. Lord, so we are looking to you in faith. We're asking from you for the nations. We're asking for lost men and women, boys and girls, to come to Christ. Lord, through our ministry here in this city, through the ministry of the churches here in this city, Lord, for the nations, through our missions partners in in India, in the Dominican Republic, in Newfoundland, in Labrador, Lord, we just pray that you would miraculously move and Lord, we will give you all the glory as we watch dead bones come to life. 
God, please. And, and Lord, help us to be a people of prayer because we can't, we can't program this. We can't effort this. It, it's only from you. God, so please, would you see fit to, to allow us to see salvation in our families and on our streets and in this city? And God, we, we labor to that end and we plead to that end. We will be your witnesses, Lord. Enable us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and worship team, would you lead us?